Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. We're continuing our series on education by looking at the thought of the philosopher Hannah Arendt. We have forthcoming episodes on Michael Oakeshott and Eva Brand. Today we're discussing two essays by Arendt, The Crisis in Education and Reflections on Little Rock. The former was first published in Partisan Review in 1958 and the latter in Dissent in 1959. However, the Little Rock essay was written about a year before its publication, so these essays were written around the same time. Although the Little Rock essay takes as its primary theme the question of school integration, the connections to the crisis essay and the broader themes about the nature of education should be clear to readers. Crisis in Education can be found in a volume called Between Past and Future and Reflections on Little Rock in Responsibility and Judgment. My guest today is Rita Koganzen. Rita is Associate Director of the Program on Constitutionalism and Democracy and Assistant Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia. Her research focuses on the themes of education, childhood, authority, and the family in historical and contemporary political thought. Her first book is Liberal States, Authoritarian Families, Childhood and Education in Early Modern Thought. She examines the justifications for authority over children in modern political thought. Her research and essays have been published in journals including the American Political Science Review, the Review of Politics, as well as in the Hedgehog Review, National Affairs, The Point, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. She received her Ph.D. in government from Harvard University and her B.A. in history from the University of Chicago. Welcome, Rita, to Enduring Interest podcast. It's great to have you. I'm excited to speak with you about Hannah Arendt. And um, I've really admired your work on uh, education that I've read in National Affairs and other places. So it's it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start with just a little uh, informational biography about Hannah Arendt. Who was she? When did she live? Uh, maybe mention some of her other uh, major major writings in addition to the, the essays we're going to talk about today. Hannah Arendt was born uh, in 1906 in Germany, and she was a German Jew, become significant later on. She studied uh, with Heidegger and also had an affair with Heidegger, and she ultimately ended up uh, writing her dissertation under Karl Jaspers. Uh, so she got her PhD in Germany, uh, and she fled in 1937. She spent a few years in France and then ultimately escaped to the United States in 1941, uh, where she then stayed for the rest of her life. Um, she was a kind of an influential part of this larger generation of German Jewish refugees from World War II, uh, including Leo Strauss and members of the Frankfurt School who really sort of revitalized political theory in the United States in the 1950s. Um, and she taught <clears throat> at a bunch of universities, including the University of Chicago um, and the New School uh, for Social Research in New York. And she wrote a lot of famous works that we aren't going to discuss today, uh, including The Origins of Totalitarianism. I think that was the first one that really made her name. And it was one of the first works to link Nazism uh, and Soviet communism under this banner of totalitarianism. She wrote uh, The Human Condition, Eichmann in Jerusalem, which also was uh, very widely 
read and also reviled by the Jewish establishment. She wrote On Revolution and several books of essays, one of uh, which is what the crisis in education comes from. Do you do you know, um, I remember teaching uh, one of her essays to, to my students. Do you know if she made a kind of conscious choice to try to write for a broader audience? I mean, I, the didn't the Eichmann book started as reporting for the New Yorker? Was, right. that, was that just them meeting her and thinking, well, let's just ask her to do this. And she just said, yes. Do you know if it was kind of so so her seeking out a kind of non-academic audience was a conscious conscious choice or just kind of a happy, happy accident? Well, I'm not sure what her motivation was, but she always wrote books that were much more widely accessible than the sort of strictly academic books that we're accustomed to. Um, I mean, the origins of totalitarianism is very scholarly, but in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of documentation, but it's totally readable by a person, you know, who has a college education and that's about it. Um, She did have a, a, a sort of broad sense of the sort of responsibility of public intellectuals in modernity. And I think whether she saw herself as one explicitly or not, I mean, it was clear that she was one uh, and was concerned with sort of public discourse as part of modern politics. And this this essay, Crisis of Education, is published in the late in the late 50s. Listeners can now find it in this in this volume uh, called Between Past and, and Future. So so let's start with with that uh, essay and and talk about why she thinks there's a crisis, what are the roots of it? Maybe let's just start with with one of her points initially is is she says education is a political question in the in the United States to a greater extent than it is in other countries. So maybe just say a few words about why why she thinks this educational crisis ha- has such profound political. You can look at two things, right? The first thing is what is actually prompting this essay sort of off stage, right? And there's there's really two events that are prompting this essay offstage. The first is there's this book published, Why Johnny Can't Read. Um, The title lives with us, but I think the contents are sort of disappeared. Uh, And that was published in 1955. And it's covered in like Time Magazine and these sorts of popular publications. And the argument of this book is like, we think everything in American schools is going great, but actually the students are illiterate. And that's how bad things are. And that caused a kind of public panic. And then in 1957, the Soviets launched Sputnik. And, you know, they got into space first and that caused a kind of similar consternation sort of about why our schools are falling behind. Right now, now we have a a kind of direct comparison with the Soviet Union and it seems that we're not doing as well. Uh, And so there's this in the late 1950s, a lot of public discussion of education and this idea that we are doing poorly suddenly. And we thought we were doing fine, but actually we're falling far, far behind. Uh, And that's the sort of background. And she mentions why Johnny can't read kind of in passing in that essay. But that's sort of what's going on in the background, the immediate political background. Um, And then the sort of broader politics that she she fits her reflections into is this idea that the United States is a new country. Um, It is a self-consciously revolutionary regime in the sense that it comes out of a revolution and it tries to form something new, a novus ordo seclorum. Uh, And it's also a nation of immigrants. Uh, And so schooling becomes this political, has this political valence in the United States that it doesn't have elsewhere because schools are what assimilate immigrants to the United States. And so she says, you know, that in addition to this kind of revolutionary background of the founding, um, that has sort of made Americans worship novelty 
and the new, and they become really easy marks for the fraud of progressive educational philosophies, which also promise to cultivate the unique newness of children. Uh, So that's what she thinks is unique about the United States, that it's kind of uniquely susceptible uh, to progressive educational theories, whereas Europe, which actually birthed these theories, has never really adopted them on so wide a scale as the United States has. Right. So let's let's walk through her. Um, she, she's very upfront and um, blunt about uh, the what she calls the bankruptcy of the progressive reforms. Uh, and I think she does a, a pretty masterful job of kind of encapsulating them into these three three main reforms. So uh, maybe just walk walk through those. You know, take the first one, which she calls the emancipation of of children. What what does she mean by emancipation? What are they being emancipated from? I think the broad problem she sees with uh, progressive education, which we should talk about further on in the essay, right, is that it mistakes the nature of children. It mistakes what she calls natality, uh, which is a really central theme in her thinking. And is I think one of the reasons that this essay is really important, even though it's kind of not one of her major works, because it really dwells on and explains this idea of natality, what natality involves. And natality is the fact that children come into the world, new children come into an old world, right? That children are always new by definition. There's never been anybody around who is like, you know, every person is a new individual. They've never existed before, but the world that they're born into has been built up over centuries uh, and is old. And so their education has to take certain forms in order to be effective. And you can't just do anything. And the problem with progressive education is that it tries to sort of, it, it completely overlooks this fact about children and natality and just tries to sort of create a new world. And so the first thing it does, as she says, right, it emancipates children from whom? From adults, right? Uh, that there, it has this idea that children, there exists, as she says, there exists a child's world uh, and a society formed among children that are autonomous and must insofar as possible be left to them to govern. Adults are only there to help with this government, right? So that, you know, you see this a lot in 20th century children's literature. Children in their, you know, as they interact with each other are fully authentic. Uh, And when adults intervene, artificiality enters, right? And they're kind of suppressed by the demands of adults. And so to free children would be to free them from adults. Uh, And she says, this is a extremely dangerous undertaking because what you're really doing when you free children from adult authority is you're subjecting them to each other's authority. It's not that you're getting rid of authority entirely and suddenly you have this like beautiful democracy of perfect equal children. No, what you have is the social pecking order of childhood and it's really tyrannical, much more tyrannical actually than when adults are in charge and adults can moderate children and discipline children and put distance between children right by their authority. When children are in charge, they just abuse each other, essentially. And so she says, like, you know, the authority of a group, even a child group, is always considerably stronger and more tyrannical than the severest authority of an individual person can ever be. By emancipating, uh, by being emancipated from the authority of adults, the child has not been freed, but has been subjected to a much more terrifying and truly tyrannical authority, the tyranny of the majority, right? And so because there's a lack of adult authority or anybody guiding this child group, I mean, it's a sort of Lord of the Flies vision. (laughs) that she has of children put together on their own. Right. So is is the just back to connecting this first reform and her articulation of it versus this fact of natality. So she, she's saying that if if you take um, the reality of this new generation being 
born into an old world, the first thing to know about education is, is the sort of retaining a connection between the world as it is and the world of the children. But the progressive educators, rather than doing that, decide to, to create a children's world unto itself. Is, is, is that the a, a fair yeah. kind of recapitulation of what? Yeah. I mean, so she, she thinks that progressive education, and she's kind of historically right about this, right, grows out of Rousseau. Uh, and a bunch of other pedagogues that sort of build on Rousseau. And Rousseau's insight that they take is that the child is naturally good and is corrupted by the world. And so the task of education is to protect the child from all kinds of corruption, you know, that come from adults. And so progressive education takes it to the degree that they say, protect the child from adults, right? Because to be exposed to adults is to be corrupted in your natural goodness. Uh, and in that sense, mistakes the the conditions of childhood because, in fact, you have to be introduced into the world. It doesn't make any sense to protect you from all the corruptions of the world because you have to go live in this world, right? And so Arendt's insight is that, in fact, natality is inherent. It's not something that you can corrupt or do away with. The newness of an individual just is inherent in them, and you can't you can't educate him out of what is unique about him. Right, right. Good. All right, so that's that's the first progressive reform that that she thinks has steered us wildly off course. Uh, the, the second one has to do with pedagogy and and um, substance. So so talk a bit about uh, pedagogy and and I guess method methodology would be the other way to put it. Well, so then she says the sort of second assumption of progressive education uh, is that pedagogy is a kind of science. And it's applicable to any subject. And so what teachers need to learn is pedagogy, how to teach, right? Rather than the substance of what they're teaching, we might call the subject matter. Uh, and so teaching, teacher education becomes totally focused on these methods of teaching. That's what pedagogy is, rather than, she says, the mastery of any particular subject. And she says the problem with this is that it further diminishes adult authority in the school because it takes away what she calls the most legitimate source of the teacher's authority, right? The, the fact that the teacher knows something, something concrete and substantial, substantive, that the child doesn't know. And when you have that kind of authority, the child immediately recognizes, right? Children see that there are adults who know things and they will defer without coercion to that. Right. They will defer to this sort of expertise. I mean, it's not what she's described is not exactly expertise, but it's something like this greater or more superior knowledge. And you don't have to beat them into deferring to it because they see it's their own interest to learn from this person. And she says what happens when you take away this this sort of obvious superiority in knowledge is that you have to then invoke coercion to maintain your authority. Right. So this is when you get the like, you have to do this because I told you so. Right. Or if you don't do what I tell you, you're going to go to detention. Right. I mean, these kinds of threats that are involved in disciplining in sort of modern school discipline, they come from the fact or they're, you know, to some degree, you always need a little bit of that. But you're going to need a lot more of it if the teachers can't sort of persuade students or demonstrate to students that they have natural authority and that that natural authority can only come from greater knowledge of a subject. So she thinks you're actually further undermining by by training teachers in teaching rather than in subjects. You're actually further mining, undermining their ability to be good teachers because they won't be able to wield that kind of natural authority that evokes voluntary deference from students. Right. And that 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 one seems to me to be very much 
around today. I mean, from what I know about um, advanced degrees and in, in education, the emphasis is way over in the pedagogical direction than in, in, in the substance direction. And even, I guess, in our educational debates today, the sort of heavily culture warrior politicized debates, right? It's not only about substance, but, you know, now we're talking about different different races and ethnicities have having different ways of knowing and all of this stuff. So it just, this seems, this problem that she points out in the late fifties seems to, you know, still be a problem if, if not even worse, I guess I would say. Yeah. I mean, I think where you really see this is in the breakdown of school discipline in the 1960s and seventies. I mean, really rapidly after she writes this essay, I mean, part of that has to do with the courts ruling that students have rights um, and, you know, from Tinker v. Des Moines, there's a whole series of legal rulings that sort of protect children in schools from discipline. But at the same time, there's also just a total breakdown in discipline. And we get the rise of school violence and things that really hadn't been seen before. And they're much older than we tend to think. I mean, we tend to think of school violence as like shootings, um, but there's all kinds of other violence that precedes shootings. Uh, and, you know, there's a, actually there's a really wonderful documentary if you ever want to watch this. It's kind of long, but it's great. It's called High School, uh, and it's directed by this guy, Frederick Wiseman, who, who directs really long kind of realistic documentaries. And he just goes to this Philadelphia high school in 1969 and, you know, shoots the classroom, the interactions between the teachers and the students, between the administrators and the students. And it's a really remarkable display of this loss of authority. I mean, it just consists of adults haranguing the students, trying to make these completely absurd arguments to them for why they should listen and obey. But none of them seem to have the kind of authority, you know, any kind of natural authority that they know what they're talking about. And that's why you ought to listen to them. So there's all kinds of these pathetic sorts of you'll go to detention if you don't do what I say. Or like I did this when I was a kid and that's why you should do it. Right. Or like this just totally irrational sorts of argumentation with high school students who are a little older. Uh, and it's really like, it's hilarious when you watch it now, it really contains in like a really subtle way, this, what Arendt is getting at, which is what happens when the teachers don't know anything, but they still have to, in a way, rule the children right. and how that actually breaks down the, the effect of that rule. And the, the title of the documentary is just called high school. It's called high school. Okay. Yeah. Good. So, so let's then move on to this third reform doing, doing versus learning. What does she, what does she mean by doing? Yeah. So this is like a, uh, I think pretty well-known progressive educational assumption, right? That you can only know and understand, you can know and understand only what you have done yourself. That's how Arendt puts it. And you can see this in Dewey um, and in a lot of, you know, American progressive educators, this idea that we've got to uh, learn by doing, Right. So Dewey likes the idea that you're going to like learn how to fix a car. You're going to do wood shop. You're going to like grow seeds into plants. And that's how you're going to learn about botany. Uh, and so she's, you know, it seems like a really innocuous thought. Of course, like we do learn by doing. Uh, but she says the problem with this presumption is that um, everything, all of education becomes kind, becomes a kind of skill attainment. And you have to be able to get a concrete skill out of everything that you're studying. So one thing that it does is it allows teachers to get away with knowing very little substantive knowledge of subjects, because in a sense, it's not their job to impart substantive knowledge. It's their job to facilitate this learning by doing. But the other problem is that you end up with a kind of lack of justification for learning anything substantive. 
right? And she says it also breaks down this distinction between play and work. And that because children's sort of characteristic activity is thought to be play, everything has to be learned through play, in effect. It has to be fun. And that diminishes the, the possibility of doing, hard, that, that learning is hard work. And that in fact, you have to do hard work in order to learn. And she says that infantilizes, especially the older child who is already capable of doing hard work in order to learn. And it keeps people in this kind of childish stage of always thinking that you can only learn essentially through play. When in fact, there are very difficult things that have to be learned, not through play, but through work. And so you can, we can think of a modern example of this, which is like critical thinking. You know, this is a nice buzzword. When we try to justify why we teach anything, right? Calculus, microbiology, the French Revolution, educators tend to justify it by saying, well, it doesn't really matter if the student remembers the details of calculus or microbiology or the French Revolution 20 years from now. I will have done an important thing if I have taught them critical thinking skills, right? Okay, well, nobody knows what critical thinking skills actually are. Nobody really bothers to define them. It doesn't matter in a sense, right? It's right. the conversion of the subject knowledge to some skill that justifies bothering with it, right? And the problem is then, of course, the subject knowledge is totally interchangeable and doesn't matter at all. Right. We could be doing microbiology or we could be doing cooking or we could be doing fashion design, like literally anything is interchangeable with anything else. And so you've lost, in a sense, the justification for education. Right. Or for any kind of education that goes beyond vocational training, because when it comes down to teaching skills, why would you bother teaching useless skills when you could teach useful ones? Right. And the French Revolution and calculus are always going to be in the world of skills useless relative to cooking, right? Or driver's ed or something like that, that we know we use every day. And right, so right. that's what she sees as the danger. It erodes the fundamental justification for all kinds of higher education that are hard to, you know, things that are hard to master and that actually do explain to you the world. That's the problem. Driver's ed doesn't explain the world and cooking doesn't explain the world. They help you to live. But what you really need through education is to be introduced to the world. And that actually requires you to know what the French Revolution was, that specifically, and not something else, because the French Revolution contributed to the, pol the political world that we live in. And it was really a central contributor. So um, that's what she sees as this danger. Yeah. And she, I mean, at, at various points in this essay, she invokes um, Tocqueville. And you can, you know, you can see how the sort of doing over learning even fits with Tocqueville's portrait of where democratic people's will tend, you know, so there are lots of overlaps, I think, with with uh, Arendt's arguments about American education and, and Tocqueville's arguments about American education, too. Yeah, well, she's definitely drawing on Tocqueville for a lot of things here, including this idea of the public and the private and the associational realm um, and things like that. But yeah, that's right. I mean, Tocqueville says the same thing. Americans tend towards the shortest way, the shortest path to money. Uh, and very few people will have the patience and the disposition to study the, the sort of aristocratic knowledge that actually has to be retained for democracy to persist. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So we've moved through, I think, nicely her articulation of, of the progressive reforms that have that have gone wrong and that have taken us down a path that, you know, is causing real harm to children. I think she's pretty 
pretty straightforward about that. Can you give us an encapsulation of kind of what Arendt thinks education is properly understood? If we, you know, if we avoid all of this nonsense, to be pejorative, what, what does she think the essence of education is? What, you know, what should it really look like? Yeah, I mean, she doesn't give a concrete picture of what it should look like, but I think you could take from this essay that it should look like the German gymnasium, which is her education, in fact, right? That So when she, she makes this kind of counterintuitive point, I mean, she describes, she sort of breaks down what the German gymnasium is into sort of philosophical concepts without saying that that's what she's really envisioning. But she says, you know, education is requires authority. The essence of education is authority. And you have to preserve that authority, even though you are in a regime that rejects authority. And so that becomes one of the complications that she talks about later on. But, you know, if we, if we go back to this conception of natality, so all children are wholly new individuals. So they carry this newness with them into the world. And we don't have to do anything in particular to cultivate this newness or uniqueness in them. So what instead we have to cultivate is the understanding of the world that preceded their birth, right? This old world. Uh, So this requires two things, she says. First, it requires this private realm of the home. And the reason it requires that is because children have this kind of dichotomous character. They're becoming human beings, human beings in becoming, as she says. And you can think of this as like, younger children, right? Younger children, babies, toddlers, maybe, you know, up to about school age, something like that, mostly are just growing, right? That's like their main function and task. Like when they're babies, they're literally just doing these really basic physical tasks, like eating, sleeping, you know, defecating. That's it. It's just a cycle. Repeat. Uh, And as they get a little older, they add more to their repertoire. You know, they're learning to talk. They're learning to do physical things like walk and run and jump and all of these things. But these are really basic physical functions, right? And so she says, while the child is in this phase of just growing, where the fact of growth just dominates everything, right? They're not like learning Latin. They're just like learning how to function in the world. Except for John Quincy Adams, maybe. Yes, sure. Uh, Right. Or John Stuart Mill. I mean, you can impose all kinds of things into this period. But like the basic fact, she says, of this period is you're just growing. The fact of growth dominates everything else. And that has to take place in the private realm because it doesn't make any sense. The world has no part in that. And the child has no part in the world, the larger public realm, while they're in this process of growth and development. Uh, And so that's kind of this shielded world of the home. And that's where young children simply belong until they're ready to start to understand the larger world. And so understanding is a kind of part of cognition. It's not part of your physical body and the physical development that's required of early, early youth. So then you have older children, older children go to school. And so that's where children are introduced into the world, but they're not just thrown into the world. She says that wouldn't make any sense because they would destroy it and it would destroy them at the same time. They need to be sort of introduced to the world, and that's the function of the school. And the school is this strange institution that is between the public and the private. In a certain sense, it's private because parents still have a lot of control over children while they're in school, and they have control over the schools. And in another sense, it's public because the schools are run by the state, and it's the state that requires that children go to schools in the first place. Um, And we can still see, I mean, it's puzzling when she says, well, this is the social realm, 
And it's this thing between the public and the private. And the boundaries of it are very difficult to police. Um, and she tries to sort of set them out in this essay about Little Rock. And that's one of the places where, I mean, by trying to lay out the boundaries really distinctly, it ends up actually the argument sort of doesn't work as well. But in principle, you can see what she's talking about when we think about, you know, children in school there's all these privacy rules still that surround children in school. Like you can't publish pictures of children without their parents' permission, like in the school, on the school website. Right. And, you know, their grades and their disciplinary records and all of that stuff is tightly kept secret from even from other children in the school, unless they want to divulge it. Right. But nobody else can access that information. And so there's a sense in which we still really hold this high standard of privacy, hold schools to this high standard of individual privacy for children that reflects the fact that they're not really public yet. They're not public actors. Uh, so I think it's it's still intuitive to us that the school is a kind of in-between institution, not fully public, although run by the public, not fully private because you now no longer have this total control over your children that you have literally within your own home. <clears throat> so in the school is where we introduce these older children to the world. And that's the process that requires authority and that she's most concerned that progressive education is destroying. Can you say a little bit more about, I was struck by your, your articulation of, of the, so, so she says there's this double aspect of the child as seen by the educator. One, um, one aspect is this educating the child for life, which is primarily done in the family, has its physical aspects of you, as you've emphasized. And then there's this, this, um, aspect that that you're preparing the child for the world and you also need to protect the world from the from the child can you say a little bit more about that that double aspect especially the aspect of life it it seems to me she also wants to make the case that that seeing the child as as a as someone who is becoming you know a full human being also takes a kind of socialization but the socialization is going to be I don't know, fragile or fraught, and, and therefore the, the family and the private sphere is, is always going to be a place where, where that process kind of has to be protected or nurtured in a, in a quite careful way. So is, is, that, is, is that the kind of the source of the tension between the, the private realm and school, that school can, can become dangerous kind of quickly if we're not careful? Does is that, is that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. So because the child is really susceptible at this point to like all outside influences, right, it becomes really central that the influence that you have is consistent and it's the parents or whoever is in the family, right? And once you you introduce influences that are contrary to what the, the family's authority is suggesting, the child becomes really confused and sort of unable to handle this tension because he's a child. You know, she says adults like encounter conflicting arguments and views all the time and they don't have any problem with it. We are, by the time we're adults, able to handle it, but the child is not able to handle it. And so the school is kind of dangerous. On the one hand, it's necessary because we need some kind of intermediate institution that isn't the world that introduces children to the world. On the other hand, you know, the depiction she gives of the tyranny of other children right? That comes about yeah. just because there's not enough adults right, even right. to try to exercise authority, right? Uh, that happens in the school. That would never happen in the home because you would never have this kind of situation of a preponderance of children. Right. And so that, so that's the, I guess that makes sense. Cause then that's the, I, th I think the most concrete connection between 
crisis in education and then the essay reflection on on Little, Little Rock, you know, that that essay takes its at least as, as she tells it in the initial the initial paragraph of the essay, she's taking her bearings from this very striking photograph of a young African-American girl being escorted into the school. And uh, and so she starts off the essay and she and she says, what would I do if I were an African-American mother? And she says, under no circumstances would I expose my child to conditions which made it appear as though it wanted to push its way into a group where it was not wanted. Psychologically, the situation of being unwanted, a typical social predicament, is more difficult to bear than outright persecution because personal pride uh, is involved. And so in this essay, we, we should say got her into some into some trouble, became controversial. And she she later wrote to Ralph Ellison, who was one of the one of the people who who wrote to her and kind of objected to it. And and she, I don't know, maybe apology would be be too strong, but she recanted at least part of her uh, some of her views in, in the essay. But um, I think you think this essay is is still worth worth reading and very important just because it articulates the the kind of dynamic that that you were just talking about it. This tension between the, the world and 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 the private sphere. Yeah, I mean, I think she she sort of apologized for ascribing these motivations to the black parents who were sending their kids to to integrate the schools. Right. And I think she's probably I mean, she probably did get those motivations wrong. Like she didn't really understand what the families were doing by sending their kids to integrate Central High School. And, and that's what she says to Ellison. But I think she's right about the the other side of it, which is the the white racism and how the students in the school were going to respond to black students integrating the school. And the reason she's right is because she gets something right about the nature of schools and their kind of social aspect, which is distinct from this public, this formally public aspect, which is the school is a state run institution. Right. And it, you have rights to attend it. Uh, and she says, OK, well, that's right. But, you know, her critique of the civil rights movement in the late 50s is you're starting from the last place that you should start, that you should start from the overtly public things the public things which can be enforced by law fairly easily, as long as there's a kind of willpower to enforce it, right? So she says voting, um, access to you know, public transit, the buses, and even sort of semi-private things like hotels and restaurants, um, and striking down anti-miscegenation laws. She thinks those are the first places that the civil rights movement should go. And the reason is because they're fully public in the sense that if you change the law and you enforce the changed law, you can actually vote, right? Blacks can vote. They can get on a bus and ride it and sit anywhere. They can you know, go to a restaurant and they can marry who they want as long as those laws are enforced. And there's nothing about racial prejudice that is going to prevent them from just strictly using those services, right? Or going to the ballot box or something like that. So long as the laws protecting them and protecting their rights are enforced. The problem with school integration is it's not just a matter of enforcing the law, right? The law can say that racial segregation is illegal in the schools. We can even send police or the National Guard or whatever to enforce students' rights to enter the school. But the problem is that the school is a social world and they're not. The, there's nothing that the law can do to guarantee that the, that the white children there are gonna treat the black students well, right? Or even the white teachers. And so if the white children and the white teachers are racist and don't think that those black students should be there, they're not gonna be able to get a good education there. 
even though the law, their right to attend will be formally protected. And that's sort of a rent's insight that what's going to happen when you when you sort of make society and social equality the first the first order of business is that you're going to fail. Right. It's not that it's wrong that you should want social equality, but that it's not going to come about until the adults, the white adults, abandon their prejudice, their racial prejudice. You can't start with the children because the children that is the white children at Central High School or any of these other Southern schools that are being integrated are just going to do what their parents tell them. They learn from their parents. And if their parents are racist and they're abusing the black students who are trying to integrate the schools, it's impossible to expect that the white students there are going to have a different opinion. Right. Or that they're going to spontaneously overcome their parents' social views. And so it's it's you cannot get integration until adults have changed their views and made integration, social integration, a priority and then taught that to their children. Uh, and so she says in that essay, as for the children, forced integration means a very serious conflict between home and school, between the, their private and their social life. And while such conflicts are common in adult life, children cannot be expected to handle them and therefore should not be exposed to them. Right. So I think that that's a really central insight. And it's really an insight on, about the white children more than it is about the black children. Right. The black children, I think she accepted after criticism that they knew what they were getting into. But the white children were not going to be able to change their minds under those conditions. And so it wasn't until adults took responsibility for changing their minds that we could say that that the that their children were likely to do that. And I think in a lot of ways, I mean, she's been borne out her predictions. Right. If we think about how the civil rights movement worked out, school integration has been the least successful element of the civil rights movement. And, you know, we don't today we don't really speak of a gap in bus riding or even a gap in voting, um, but we speak of a, an achievement gap, an academic achievement gap. And de facto segregation has persisted. I mean, it's been 70 years and it's still the case that the schools are not integrated. Right. So in that sense, I think she understood something about the institution and the function of the school that Americans tended to overlook when they viewed it as a sort of formally public institution. Right. And you can even I guess you could I, I didn't think about this actually in, in preparation for the for the podcast, but just it just occurred to me now listening to you and thinking about um, your your emphasis on the importance of authority. But you can I think you can even say that that from Arendt's point of view, and I don't I guess maybe she may, maybe she doesn't make much of this in the Little Rock essay, but there would be a real problem of kind of natural authority in those integrated schools, wouldn't there? I mean, where would the the students, where, where would they find the the natural authority if it, especially if it conflicted with, with what they were hearing from their parents? Yeah, right? well, that's exactly what she says. She says that forced integration means a very serious conflict between home and school, right? So the, the assumption is for the white students, their parents are virulently racist and they are teaching all of this to their children. And the school authorities, I mean, in the case of Central High School, you know, the, the school board wanted to integrate, the school superintendent wanted to integrate. And so I don't know what the individual teachers at Central High School thought, but let's assume that the teachers are a kind of extension of the, the state in this case, and they are pro-integration. You have teachers saying one thing, your parents saying the polar opposite thing. And she says, children cannot be expected to overcome essentially their parents' prejudice as children, 
right? It's going to take adults overcoming that their prejudice. Maybe those children will grow up and overcome their prejudice, but then integration will only happen with those children's children, right? Because it can't happen in a school where there is this intense social antipathy to this group of people. And they can be allowed into the school, but you're not gonna have social equality in the school. You're gonna have merely formal legal integration, right? Some number of black children in the school. Would it be, I'm just trying to think of a kind of counter argument to a rent, you know, not only on this question of, of what the, the black families, you know, would have been thinking by, by sending their children there, but, but sort of counter to the, to the argument that, that you're articulating, you know, couldn't, couldn't you say that you don't, you don't want to bring these children in, into a world that is, that is just riven with, with prejudice, right? That, that you don't want to perpetuate the old ways if, if, the, if the old ways are, are you know, chock full of, of prejudice and discrimination. And so the school is actually the, the place where you can kind of save a generation. And may, if, it, if it causes conflict at home and, you know, you've got white, you know, these white racist families are, at home that are, that are spouting prejudice, great get get them out of the home bring them to school and show them that um african-american kids are not what their parents say they are so i i guess wouldn't and 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 precisely because school is this kind of not quite private but not public place wouldn't it be the best place for to kind of reveal the shoddy thinking of the you know racist families i guess that that's that's the I sort of best best counter argument I can come up with, I guess, to to rent. Well, I think that was the argument for integration, right? I mean, I don't think that anybody advocating racial integration in the 1950s thought like we're going to change the parents' minds, or because we right. mandate this, the parents are going to just get on board. Um, I think that 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 is an assumption or a hope, maybe, um, and I think rent is right to say it's very. I mean, she says at the beginning it's very unlikely. Given the nature of schooling, the nature of children, and the nature of authority, it is very unlikely, and especially the fact that there's this progressive, a lot of these progressive assumptions are running through even the Southern schools, right? She says it's very unlikely that that, that is going to be the outcome. So it's unlikely that the, the kids will grow up to adopt non, non-prejudiced opinions if the families are what they are. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, assuming that uh, the other parts of the civil rights, you know, movement aren't happening, but she she thinks actually it's the larger civil rights movement for public equality that is going to persuade people of the the equality of African Americans. It's not going to be sitting in school with them when your parents are telling you that they're terrible and disgusting, because what happens? I mean, what she's looking at is that picture of Elizabeth Eckford, right? The 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 black girl who's going into Central High School, and the the famous thing about that picture is her face, but also the white faces around were like jeering and contorted and they're full of hate. Right. And so she says like, that's what her school experience is going to be like. Right. Where did that hate come from? It's not going to be tempered by seeing her because there's lots of black people in Little Rock. I mean, there, there have been African-Americans and white people living side by side in the South for over a century and that living near each other, that proximity was clearly insufficient to overcome racism, right, right? Right. And so why would proximity in a classroom have a different effect if all of the influences of the home are contrary to that? Right. So she says you might get a, you might get confused because the 
the you know teachings of your teachers will differ from what your parents taught you, but it's very unlikely that you will end up on the side of you know tolerate toleration and acceptance or equality. And I mean, again, you can say like that seems to be true in a certain way. I mean, not maybe broadly in the society, there might be less racism, but it's not because of school integration, because school integration didn't succeed. That, you know, when white families realized that they couldn't intimidate the black students to get out of the schools, they left the schools themselves, right? And so even today, you don't really have on a large scale integrated schooling in the United States. So whatever was the cause of decreasing racism over the period of time between Arendt's essay and today does not seem to be have been mainly school integration. Right. Yeah, I think that that's certainly fair. All right. Well, let's let's um get back to the the crisis essay, and I mean we can return to the to the little little rock essay if if we uh, if we think it's mm-hmm. it's uh, makes sense. But but I want to get back to the the essence of education and her articulation of that. She mentions a couple of things, one of which we've already talked about, but she she um she talks about it in a slightly different light. Um, so I wanted to come back to to this question of authority. On page 186, um, she emphasizes that someone's qualifications can be indispensable for authority, but it, it can never by itself beget authority. So your, your PhD or your, your uh, education degree, right? That, that doesn't always help you. It can't always help you. And then she says this, she says, the teacher's qualification consists in knowing the world and being able to instruct others about it. But his authority rests on his assumption of responsibility for that world. So, so maybe just talk about the relationship between, I guess, what I've called uh, natural authority and, and the world and taking responsibility for the world. What, what does she mean by that? I think it's a very interesting formulation. Yeah. So I think what she means by taking responsibility for the world, right, is to say on the part of adults for for adults to say, I did this right. Everything that that exists in the world around us. Right. Including the political history and current especially current injustice. Right. I am responsible for this. And so I can give you an example that actually I encountered uh, after I graduated from college. I was doing something like after school tutoring uh, for a little while. And um, we would with middle school students. And this was like roughly 2007, 2008. So the Iraq war, like this was around the surge in, in the Iraq war. We were in the Iraq war. And, you know, I was mostly with people who opposed the Iraq war adults. The other tutors were opposed to the Iraq war. And when the students would ask about it, like they would be hear about something on the news, like the surge. And they would say like, well, what can you explain? Like what this is, right? What is, why are we in war at war in Iraq? And basically all the the adults, the tutors would be like, well, because these other people who are idiots, like decided that we should do this thing, which is totally stupid, which we shouldn't be doing, which is invading Iraq and then trying to, you know, transform their political regime. So that's not taking responsibility for the world, right? It's saying those other people did it, not me. Everything is messed up and out of my control. And so what you're conveying to the student actually is like, everything is out of your control too. Right. The world is run by these like incomprehensible forces and we have no part in it. Mm. And I absolve myself because what you want to do is say, I'm not to blame. And she thinks that's a really fundamental human impulse is to say, I'm not to blame for all the bad things that are in the world around us. But in fact, you are 
right? To the child you are, you are the people who did this thing because this thing did not do itself through some spontaneous force, right? Aliens didn't come and invade Iraq. Americans invaded Iraq and they decided to do it. And you were there, one of the adults who was part of this decision. And if you can't say to children, you can't take responsibility and say, I did that, even if I personally didn't vote for the politician who voted for it, right? I did that. We are the people who made this world this way, right? You are, she says, betraying children. You are failing to convey to them what the world is. And you're teaching them something else. Like the world is run by incomprehensible magical forces that do just bad things for some reason, right? But no adult is responsible for that. And so that's what she means, I think, by taking responsibility for the world. It's like saying, I made the Iraq war happen, right? Me, personally, and being willing to accept the, that and its consequences. And she says the reason that, in, that adults actually, she says the problem with authority is not that adults exercise it poorly. It's that they refuse it, right? That adults would rather not, modern adults would rather not accept authority or wield authority over children because they basically think they've made such a mess of the world and everything is just so screwed up that if we let children alone and we don't corrupt their, you know, again, natural goodness and let them sort of grow up with each other, they will produce a perfectly just beautiful world that undoes all this damage. Right. And right. that that's a kind of optimism that she says totally ungrounded, right? They're going to produce what they're going to produce but they're gonna do a terrible job if they have no idea what world they're stepping into when they do it. Right. Uh, and so I think that's what she means by taking responsibility and the authority that that gives you, right? If you say, I did it, I made the Iraq war. I mean, you don't really have to say I personally did it, right? But we, the adults did it. You're showing that you understand the world, that you have something to teach to children, that you can explain something to them, right? And you can get into the details of the electoral system and how we declare war. But the point is that you did it, you have this knowledge, and that's what gives you the authority that you know the world that the child doesn't know. Even, I mean, a more moderate version of that would seem would seem to make sense to me and, and be better than sort of the, well, I, you know, the throwing up one's hands and thinking, well, those people that did that were crazy, would, would just being able to, to articulate the reasons why X people did Y thing. Right. Well, that's what it would take. Right. Is yeah. Once you once you blame yourself, once you're willing to say, like, I went, I did it. You have to say, like, why would anybody do it? Right. right. So while I we thought that there was, you know, the building weapons of mass destruction and all the sort of justifications that were given in 2003 and 2004, you give them to the child and you say, like, maybe we were wrong. Right. But that's what we thought at the time. And that is teaching something about the world to the child. Right. This is why people go to war. Right. These are reasons. Sometimes they're mistaken, but that, you know, war is an essential thing to understand about the world that the child is being brought into. Yeah. And it seems, I mean, I think you're right to connect it to the, 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 the sort of that first tenet of progressive education, emancipating children from the world of adults and, and letting them um, create their, their own world. Uh, it seems to me that that's sort of the, the other side of the coin to not taking responsibility for anything and using the classroom to, I don't know, to make the, make the children, um, turn them away from the world in such a violent way that you want them to become, you know, I, I mean, may, maybe that's too strong, but just sort of proto revolutionaries and sort of look at the world with 
I mean, if not, if not disgust, at least cynicism. Yeah, I mean, Arendt is not opposed to revolution, right? I mean, that, it's important to see this essay is so conservative in many ways, but she's not conservative and she's in favor. I mean, you know, she thinks the American Revolution was a great thing. And she, you know, cheers these Eastern Bloc revolutions or these sort of efforts in the 1950s and 60s to throw off the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. So she's not opposed to revolution, but she thinks that um, you're not really going to get revolution from children if you sort of deny them this authority and this kind of education about the world, that what you're gonna get is just tyranny, right? Because children will act on the impulses that they have as children and they'll never develop beyond that because to develop beyond that requires knowledge of the world. Right, a right? genuine so, revolution, right, <laughs> would require knowledge of the world and an appreciation for the world as it is with all its limitations and, and problems. But also, I guess it's it's presumably even if you create a revolution, there's going to be some things you want to keep. So you don't yeah, well, I mean, her her model of, of a successful revolution is the American Revolution. Right. And, and part of and she talks about this in, in her book on revolution. You know, she compares it to the French Revolution and basically the animating question is sort of why was the American Revolution successful? while the French Revolution was a failure on its own terms. It didn't bring about the liberal democratic regime that it tried to bring about. And she says, well, because it didn't try, the Americans didn't try to do too much. They didn't try to deal with the social question, which is the question of poverty. Uh, And so in a sense it was because, and, and she does describe the American founders as being so deeply steeped in history, in Greek and Roman and European history that, and that history informing their revolution in a way that was ultimately very salutary relative to the French who were really trying to make everything new in a conscious way right. that sort of, I mean, what she's concerned with with natality is that when you're consciously trying to do something new, that you're probably going to go too far because in doing any revolution, the American revolution was new. It didn't try to be new though, but, but by definition, it couldn't have been otherwise because the people acting in it were new. They were not Cato and they were not Cicero, right? They were James Madison and and Thomas Jefferson. And so by definition, whatever they produced would have been new. So there's no need to be conscious, to make a conscious effort at newness. Your individuality will guarantee that your products will be new, right? And so the difficult task and the task that we actually have to give our attention to is to cultivate the old, Right. Or to show to people and help them to understand the old, which is to say the existing world. Right. And so that's why she thinks you leave children to, you know, on their own. They're going to produce tyranny. They don't know how to do anything else. In fact, it's education that would teach them how people in the past have tried to do something other than tyranny. Right. And it's with that knowledge that they can do something other than tyranny themselves. Right. And, and so and you mentioned in, in your remark uh, a, a few minutes ago, that um, for the sake of what she says, this is 189 um, near mm-hmm. the section break, exactly for the sake of what is new and revolutionary in every child, education must be conservative. It must produce this newness and introduce it as a new thing into an old world, which, however revolutionary its actions may be, is always from the standpoint of the next generation, superannuated and close to destruction. So she thinks education is, is in some sense always and has to be at least in part conservative. And then um, on the next page, she says that the crisis of authority in education is most closely connected with what she calls the crisis of tradition. So, so maybe just, just talk as we get to the end of the essay about this idea that education always has to have this conservative element 
And and then what what does she mean by this grand crisis of tradition? Because this is this is where she connects what she calls the crisis of education with what she calls the modern crisis, sort of the the crisis in the largest philosophical sense. Yeah, I mean, so she says education is fundamentally conservative in the sense that it is about conserving something, right? So it's it's backward looking. And she says the fundamental task of education is essentially to teach children about the past, right? Because the past up to now is the old world and you can't teach them about the future because they're the ones who are going to take charge of that, right? There's no point in trying to direct their futures because they're ungovernable in a certain sense. But the past can be clearly conveyed to them. And in that sense, she thinks education is conservative. And if you think about like, what is the, the German gymnasium sort of traditionally, it is that, right? It's, it's about this very rigorous effort to convey what our civilization or what human civilization has been up to now. And so, you know, that's what, what it's for the sake of, uh, of the, the new that you teach the old. And, you know, this essay comes from this collection between past and future, which has its own set of essays. One is what is tradition and one is what is authority. And so she gives a much more abstract account of these crises of tradition and authority elsewhere in the book. And I don't want to dwell on them for too long or or get too divorced from the question of education. Um, But I mean, she she basically makes an argument that that modernity has destroyed this old. I mean, Rome is really her model, this old sort of reflexive ability to see oneself as part of a tradition and a kind of natural. I wouldn't say natural, but let's say spontaneous or intuitive form of authority that comes from the past. And for the Romans, that was their their sort of reverence for the ancestors, that that sort of ordered everything about Roman society. And because Roman society was always backward looking and always took the ancestors to be sort of the great exemplars of all their virtues and never the future, right? The future is just a decline in a sense from the greatness of the past. It was very easy for them to sustain tradition and authority, right? And so she has this definition of authority. Authority is not coercion and it's not violence. It's a kind of spontaneous deference that you give to the thing you just think is better than you. And she says modernity destroys that those foundations because modernity is no longer backwards looking. It no longer takes the past as the greatest achievement that's possible for human beings. It takes the future, right? Progress. There will always be a better thing in the future, but you can't, that doesn't have authority over us. And there's no tradition that can come from this sort of future orientation. Uh, and so she says, this has sort of broken down the basic philosophy of the West. And she thinks totalitarianism is one of the results of this breakdown of tradition and authority. But she also doesn't think you can go back. So she's not a conservative like, you know, William F. Buckley, who's starting the National Review approximately at the same time as she's writing this essay, right? And, you know, Russell Kirk and these other people who are arguing like, no, we have this tradition and we can just re-adhere ourselves to it in a certain sense and, you know, restate it and, and, and follow through with it. And then we won't have these problems that we're facing today. So she's definitely on the left in rejecting that possibility. But she thinks that whatever we're going to do in this crisis of modernity, we have to, in a way, exempt education from these modern trends. Um, so she says, you know, we, we have to take the step where we decisively divorce the realm of education from the others, and most of all, from the realm of public political life in order to apply it uh, to it alone a concept of authority and an attitude toward the past which are appropriate to it, but have no general validity and must not claim a general validity in the world of grownups. Uh, 
right? So she says, I have no really, I mean, she doesn't present an answer to the crisis of authority or the crisis of tradition. She just says, you can't, the logic of modernity, which is the logic of equality and the logic of freedom cannot be applied to education. We can't extend them that far. And so uh, my book that, that I just published is kind of based on this insight, right? That education is an exception to liberal principles or liberal democratic principles, right? In the public political realm, we are all equals and no authority is legitimate except authority by consent, right? We vote for somebody, that person is our representative, but not even really an authority over us, not in the sense that we're gonna do what, you know, our Congressman says in our private lives. We don't treat our Congressman that way. And so, but there's no other legitimate form of authority and Tocqueville discusses this too, right? That nobody has greater access to the truth than anybody else in a democracy. And at the same time, we're all equally free and endowed with rights. And so it would be a violation of somebody's rights to attempt to exercise this kind of authority over them to tell them how to live their lives, right? Just on the basis of being ourselves, another individual. But she says education has to be exempt from that, from those two rules, because children are something different. And in order for children to be free and equal as adults and to sort of be effective liberal democratic citizens, you have to impose authority over them and not treat them. You have to abrogate equality and liberty totally in the education of children, right? And, and education becomes a kind of inversion where you do have to exercise authority in order for it to work. And she sees that as like really difficult. Uh, and I think she's right in sort of taking the temperature of American adults that they don't wanna do it. The problem is not that children are rebellious and try to overthrow adult authority. It's that adults don't even wanna oppose their authority because they feel that they've destroyed, they've messed everything up. And they don't know what the right direction to take is. And they would rather, in a sense, leave it to the children to discover the way forward. But she says to do that is to betray them. Right. right. That yeah, we don't. Do the adults don't want to take responsibility for the world. Right. That's kind of where she concludes. And in a sense, in that book, like one of the few places where she comes up with an answer to her questions is in the education essay, where she says, whatever else we do, you have to take education as the exception to the principles that govern the rest of our regime. Right. Do, do you think to, to what extent it is, is she talking about colleges and universities is do you think do you think that falls within the, the realms that that she's discussing here or is is that sort of another world unto itself. Yeah, I mean, she at the very end of the essay, she sort of mentions this and she's pretty vague about it. She says where the line between adult childhood and adulthood falls in each instance cannot be determined by a general rule. It changes often in respect to age from country to country, from one civilization to another. Um, but education, as distinguished from learning, must have a predictable end. In our civilization, this end probably coincides with graduating from college rather than graduation from high school for the professional training in universities or technical schools, though it always has something to do with education is nevertheless in itself a kind of specialization. Um, so, you know, she says the difference or the point where education ends and the child stops being a child and is an adult, she says, you can't educate adults, right? So adult education, she says, that's an immediate red flag that you're in a, in a tyranny when we are trying to re-educate right? That phrase comes from, from modern totalitarianism. So she says the line between childhood and adulthood and the end of education probably should be the end of college. And I mean, she doesn't really make a case for it. She doesn't seem, doesn't seem that much in that essay hangs on that distinction, mm -hmm. but she does think that, and I think this is kind of true of her 
experience of American education because American high school is really different from the German gymnasium and much more basic because it encompasses everyone. And that's a point she also makes that America is so much more egalitarian that it's not willing to separate people off early on such that you could give the best students a college level education in high school and then allow college to be just like a kind of professional training for them. And as a result, college has taken up some of the functions of a kind of elite German high school, right? Or in any kind of elite secondary education. Um, and at, we have to sort of make people children longer in our civilization as a result of that, or treat them as children for longer. Yeah. I, Cause I was thinking this, this essay is obviously written before the, the rise of the new left and the tumult that takes place in the, in the universities in the late sixties. I, I haven't read anything, um, she wrote on 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 those subjects, but it just seems like a lot of the the difficulties that she identifies in this essay just in a decade, you know, get a lot a lot worse, and they're just dramatically. I mean, I mean, the emphasis on, I mean, activism and doing is is just. I mean, now it's just taken as a matter of course that that of course in colleges preparing people for the world means preparing them to engage the world in this concrete activist way. And that means wholesale rejection of, of tradition. You know, it just, so it just seems to me this, this essay resonates and was proved right on lots of different, different scores, you know, within, within a decade. And, you know, and now I think, you know, everyone can sort of see the, the result of the trends that she, she identifies. Yeah, I mean, she sort of, she was in, in favor of some of the student activism in the 1960s, as far as I know, the late 1960s. Um, but at, that was the point before it became a kind of professionalized trend, right? That the first yeah. explosion of student activism was, in a, in a sense, spontaneous. People weren't enacting a role that they thought that college had carved for them, right? They were really opposing college and opposing the institutional uh, authorities in doing that. And we could say today that kind of 1960s student activism is very much like a, a kind of expectation. You know, every college is going to have its activists and every college is going to have its, you know, jocks and its frat people. And it's just a role that you slip into that's kind of preformed for you. Uh, and the expectations are already attached to it. So I think that's certainly true in the sense that, I mean, and you can see that as a rising in part from if you think about Vietnam, right, which comes, you know, uh, you know, I guess we enter Vietnam shortly after this essay, but the sort of opposition to Vietnam, the large scale organized opposition to Vietnam does consist of a lot of people saying like, I didn't do this, right? This isn't, I'm not going to take responsibility for this because I opposed it. I was against Vietnam. And, you know, that's the generation of people who were the first set of student activists. They become professors um, or those of them who do become professors, right, then take this exact sort of posture of I oppose everything that was going on in the 1960s and 1970s. Therefore, I'm not to blame for it. Don't blame me. Right. But that's also a kind of denial of responsibility that that Arendt is, is criticizing that then leads that sort of leaves students, subsequent students stranded. Right. And cut off from the past and, you know, forced into con- just taking up that posture over and over again, because the substance isn't there. It's just like, well, they opposed. So I guess what I learned from my professors is that you, you protest, they protested Vietnam. I've got to protest the next thing, 
right? Because the substance of why, why were we in Vietnam? What was the justification for this kind of anti-communist foreign policy? All of that is something that people are not willing to take responsibility for. And so you don't get the, the substance anymore. You just get the posture being passed on and on through generations. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to, to end on, Rita. What, what um, if people wanted to read other rent essays that that you think are particularly interesting and and worth looking at or or books that you you have found you know particularly interesting what what would you recommend uh readers look to um well i think the rest of the essays in this particular collection between past and future are really helpful for sort of elucidating what she what are the underlying philosophical concerns of this much more practical in a sense essay right which is really about a public policy issue you know public education in the united states but the other essays are are more sort of philosophical and you know try to uh, explain or or tease out more why in what what are the broader forces at work behind this this current public policy concern uh so i would say the that whole book is really excellent um and I also, I think one of my other favorite books of hers is On Revolution, which I mentioned um, is this comparison of the French and American revolutions and is also, I think, a good intersection of political history and political philosophy um, in which she tries to figure out, you know, what is, what makes American, the American Revolution successful. She's one of the first Europeans who's sort of willing to say the American Revolution was successful. Uh, and also the French Revolution wasn't successful, which was not exactly an uncontroversial opinion. And, you know, in, in doing so, she explains a lot, I think, about the American founding uh, and, and sheds a lot of interesting light on the American founding. Um, so I would say th- those are two good things, but everything that she wrote is really good, actually. Yeah, she's say. a great, I think that's right. She's a great writer. Um, I'll add that in the um, in the collection where you can find the Reflections on Little Rock essay, um, that collection is called Responsibility and Judgment. And if people are interested in, in Arendt's work on, on totalitarianism, the essays in this volume uh, are great. They, they sort of extend her reflections on, on Eichmann, um, talk about the, the problem of collective responsibility. Uh, so there's an there's a essay called Personal Responsibility Under Dictatorship that I think is great. And then one called Thinking and Moral Considerations, um, where she connects the idea of moral agency with uh, having a conscience and thinking and has some interesting reflections um, on the figure of Socrates. They're, they're just, those essays are very deep and deep, but also easy, I, I would say easy, easy to read just, just because they're interesting and, and well, well constructed. Well, Rita, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Uh, I'll remind our listeners that uh, your new book is called Liberal States and Authoritarian Families, uh, Oxford University Press. And they should also look uh, to your essay in National Affairs called A Tale of Two Educational Traditions. You can find that in the summer 2021 issue of National Affairs. Great. Um, So thanks for being here, Rita. Uh, You're welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. 
Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening and see you next time on Enduring Interest.